who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. How are you today? I'm good. good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I went to the gym. I've gone to the gym every day so far this week. That's so great. Yeah. And then I'm going to go to work. It's getting to be spring here in Chicago. Alhamdulillah. I love spring in Chicago. Oh, my oh. gosh. I go kukunana. My birthday's in a couple of days. And right around now is where I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I just think it's so excited. Until about November 15th. And I'm just like, whatever, by then. <laughs> the thing about spring for Chicago is you have a couple good days. And you're like, oh, it's spring. And then it's a prolonged period of it being just a little too cold to enjoy being outside. I remember yeah. it was in May. I went to the zoo. And it was going to be something like 60 degrees in the suburbs. Which means it's not thinking it's going to be like 50 degrees at the zoo. And I was freezing. And I'm like, ah, it's nice just to have it be sunny and the days are longer. Welcome to Oh My Lord, a podcast where we discuss Chicago stories you didn't learn in school. And today I am joined by Mona. Yay. Yay. Today we are discussing Captain Streeter, or as I like to call him, the OG of seasteading. George Ooh, Captain Streeter, a criminal for whom one of Chicago's premier neighborhoods is named. First, what do you know about Captain Streeter? Actually, I didn't even know he was a captain. <laughs> As though now it's just going to be all you. I have no idea. Okay, we'll talk about that. And when, do you know anything about seasteading? Actually, no, I don't. All right. So seasteading is this weirdo libertarian fantasy of creating a lawless utopia in the uncontrolled international waters. And they've, through the decades, made several attempts at this. They've all been unsuccessful because they always get thwarted by pesky things like 
laws and insurance. Most recently during COVID, during 2020, they bought a big cruise ship that they just couldn't get insured because they weren't going to have regulations. Really is one of the goofiest things that does not get enough attention that people want to go live in the water. So our guy Streeter was ultimately ineffective at what they now call seasteading, but he had a really long go of it. And I want to say this has been a tough one to research because I found so much conflicting information, which rests in it being difficult to separate lore from facts. But here we go. I'm going to tell you the legend of Streeter that's commonly accepted to the point where it was what I was telling people about Streeterville on my tours. And the legend goes as follows. He bought a dilapidated ferry boat that he was running from Chicago to Milwaukee. And one day it got grounded on a sandbar about where the John Hancock now stands. It started to amass land. So he declared it a separate area that did not have to comply with any city or state laws. And he turned it into a real sin city, gambling, prostitution, it was all happening there. Now, wow. on, the ban- yeah. on the banks of Lake Michigan were the mansions of the richest Chicagoans. And they didn't want to look at this riffraff. So they kept trying to evict him. But every time the cops showed up, he greeted them with two things. A fake letter from Grover Cleveland saying he had the right to be there and a shotgun. And then like Al Capone, they finally got him on tax evasion. It's a wild story. but. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But this is the thing. It's somewhat sanitized and simplified, and it's infused with inaccuracies. Spoiler alert. He never went to jail for back taxes. Oof. Okay. Also, we'll talk about the Grover Cleveland letter. Cool. In fact, in my research, I just want to point this out. Many of the sources, even reputable ones, were confusing and contradictory. That said, the squirmish, it spans decades and there are many players and many battles. And I'm going to try to drill it down to the most essential and humorous details. First, we got to create a little context. This is going to be a multi-episode, but this is probably the exposition portion of the story. This all starts in 1886. And there was a lot happening in Chicago. We were rebuilding from the Great Chicago Fire. Important thing to know for anybody familiar with Chicago, anything east of where Michigan Avenue is, which was then called Pine Street, is landfill. That was all just a big march. And Pine Street and what cross street? Just all anything east of Michigan Avenue. Oh, okay. Also important to know that in the 1880s, we treated the river, the Chicago River, which flowed into Lake Michigan, which was and is our source of drinking water. We treated it like a toilet, using it to discard Uh all of our animal, industrial, and human waste. Oh, wow. Yeah. By the way, this was considered to be the best sewer system in the United States of America at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, because prior to that, they were just putting things into the soil. And then people were dying. Oh, yeah. They created this really crude 
sewer system that had everything just go downhill into the river. And in fact, in 1885, a year before Streeter's story starts, we had a torrential rainstorm with really strong winds coming out of the west, which created a concern that the river water was going to get pushed two miles off the shores of Lake Michigan into our drinking water intake. This is a long way of telling you the water of Lake Michigan was pretty gross. Yeah. Yeah. Lake Michigan is clean now. Every once in a while, you'll see something. But this was just like, you don't know what was flowing from the river into Lake Michigan. Streeter likes to say there were chunks of beef from the Union stockyards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, while I was writing this, I was remembering, have you ever been in the Chicago Harbor Lock? I don't. Can you tell me where it is? The Chicago is Harbor Lock like is next to the Chicago River to Lake Michigan. It's parallel to Navy Pier. Okay. You wouldn't know if you, it, it, you would only be in there on a boat. And Oh, then probably. It's the only way you can get from the river to Lake Michigan and vice versa. Yeah, then I have because I've done different boat tours and stuff. They built the Chicago Harbor Lock to compensate for the reversal of the river, which we will talk about at some point in time. But the funny thing is, so the way the lock works now is they open the Lake Michigan side gate just a little bit because you can't have all that water flooding wreck boats. One day we were at the front of the lock because I go through it all the time. And we see this, just a bottle of fireball and a condom come in from Lake Michigan. And it's floating there in the lock. The captain looks at me, he's like, someone had a good night last night. That's happening with the river itself. And then on the other side of what's on the other side of the river, so south of the river, we had Aaron Montgomery Ward, who had an office on Michigan Avenue overlooking Lake Michigan, and people were starting to build across the street from him. So he spent 28 years in court to save what is now known as the Grant Park development. And that started in the late 1800s as well. That's also happening in conjunction with what we're going to talk about with Streeter. Also during the course of this, this saga, just a couple things to keep in mind. We did have the reversal of the Chicago River. That happened in 1900. The Burnham Plan of 1909 came out. They built Navy Pier. We hosted a World Fair. There's a lot of stuff going on. In addition to that, we have, at that time, some of the most corrupt politicians in Chicago's slash Illinois history and vice districts that I can't think of a comparable thing that we would know today. At this time, all the rich people, they lived in, not on mansions overlooking Lake Michigan, but they lived in mansions in what was known as the Prairie District. So that was at Prairie and 18th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Potter Palmer, owner of the Palmer House Hotel, had a vision for the marshland north of the river, east of Lake Michigan, as far north as the south end of Lincoln Park. Oh, okay. That whole area was marsh. He was the first one, the first millionaire, to build a mansion on the north side. Woof. And he had a dream of multi-family dwellings in that area, so not mansions. But at that point in time, the only people who lived in apartments were immigrants and factory workers. 
he had this covert idea of luring people into multi-dwelling homes. And, oh. Yeah. Which is fascinating. He set up a secret trust with him and a group of other rich people. I'm just going to generally call them rich guys because there's a lot of them and they're confusing. And they began to sell what are called riparian rights, which is water rights. And they arranged to have this marsh area filled with soil from the pond in Lincoln Park. They were building the pond in Lincoln Park and sand from Lake Michigan. So they've got interesting. It's interesting. And I'm going to keep repeating this a lot of times. Nobody owned this property because it was a swamp or a marsh. Nobody had rights to it. They, They are selling land that doesn't exist and rights they don't have. And it's nice. all it, that sounds pretty, pretty Chicago. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine. It's just, yeah. It, people pretend to forget that at one point in time, Chicago was the Wild West. Not too earlier from this. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty recent. Yeah. 1803 was when they built Fort Dearborn. So it's in a century. There weren't even laws around this sort of stuff yet. I do want to say, though, that it's pretty complicated and pretty boring because it is real estate law. But basically, no one had, I'm reiterating it, they didn't get any formal approval for the land, for the property, for this trust that they were creating. In fact, they kept it covert. And I've read cases about, I tried to read legal briefs about this stuff, but I'm not a legal brief reader. Unless it involves Fox News. For all you non-Chicagoans, this area that we're talking about is anything east of what you call the Magnificent Mile, Michigan Avenue, where you go shopping. For those of you who paid attention to the Jesse Smollett thing, this is where Jesse Smollett lived. Oh, wow. Just to reiterate, this is rich people getting richer, but in the idea of the greater good, It was nice, if not a progressive city planning. I would say it's one of the first verbalized 15-minute cities. Because one of the other things that Palmer noted was that they didn't have anything. They had these mansions, but they didn't have any. Like The Walgreens wasn't within walking distance. Yeah. They didn't have cars. Cars weren't a big deal. I don't even know. When was the first car invented? I can look it up. Hold up. Okay. There's a Mercedes-Benz patent that goes to 1885, 1886. Okay. The three-wheel Benz patent motor car model number one is regarded as the first automobile patent number, blah, blah, blah. Mercedes-Benz group. Wow. I didn't realize that. Cars were not a big thing. In fact, one of the things in the Burnham plan of 1909 that I find fascinating is that Burnham never thought that cars would become popular. So when he designed oh, the city, when he designed the city of Chicago, it was primarily for horse and buggy. That's but th- that's a car. But it's not automotive. Yeah, I know. He I'm just being we, like it's yeah. like version one of a car, which is it's got one horsepower versus <laughs> six hundred. Burnham got so much right, and he was wrong about that one little thing. 
But thank God he wanted expansive boulevards. Yeah. And also, even though the city wasn't planned for cars, the fact that it was a grid system made it so great for cars. Right. It's good. It still works. The only thing that is the lower drives, they were always supposed to be commercial. That's where all the commercial vehicles went. But oh, um, yeah. then commercial vehicles got too big for the lower drives. Now on to our man Streeter, who, by the way, looks like Yosemite Sam of the Midwest. You know what? I was visioning that. I was visioning a big old mustache. Yep. He was born in 1837 in Flint, Michigan. Nice. On a farm in Flint, he had 10 siblings. He held jobs ranging from a miner, ice cutter, and circus performer. During the Civil Hold War. But, Wait, a circuit performer? How do you just slip that in there from the ice cut? You think I was going to catch that? I was hoping <laughs> you would. According to, we got to go back to the Civil War, but I found this book. I'm going to talk. This is a book I primarily used as my source. It's called The King of the Gold Coast, Captain Streeter, The Millionaires, and the Story of Lakeshore Drive by Wayne Clapp. And one of the things, a couple of things about Wayne Clapp, why I find him to be the best source is the other book was just Streeter dictating his stories. It's like an autobiography and Streeter is Ooh. known for exaggeration. According to Wayne Clapp, quote, envying of P.T. Barnum, Streeter traveled to Indiana with a, the menagerie oh. of three deer, two moose, a buffalo calf, and a pig, he said, weighed 1,500 pounds. Wait, what, what animal was that? A pig? A pig. Oh, a pig. A pig, Wait, he 1, said. 1,500 pounds. Yes. Oh. He billed the pig as a white elephant. He billed it as a white elephant or he built it? Build it. Like he, he advertised it as a white elephant. Yeah. Oh, gosh. He later, well, if you're one of 10 kids, you're going to have to be extra to get attention, I think. He is extra. He is just going to be extra throughout this whole thing. Because he later added a ventriloquist magician, a human pincushion, and a drama troupe. Sounds like, that sounds like a group of people I would be performing before comedy was invented. When I would be probably in that lineup. This is, yeah, this is an open mic night, really. You don't know what you're going to get. It's also just, I just want to note, he did serve in the Civil War, but as a private, not a captain. He oh. served for the Union Army, and he was, in fact, a deserter. Really? Yeah, a peacetime. We had already won, but he, was, he got bored. <laughs> he got Makes bored. sense. He and got he, bored. He got bored. He, there's a legend, which I probably presumably made up by him. Was that he got kicked out for getting in a fight. Or he but was drunk there, and high or something. <laughs> there's some, other, yeah, alcohol plays a role in this story. But Wayne Clatt did go and look at a lot of what he could find from source material. Spoiler alert, there's a lot of court cases in this story. After his first wife, Minnie, left him, taking all of his money to chase a c career in vaudeville, Oh my I'm gonna gosh. Uh, yeah, there's nothing that happens after. I don't know why I said that sentence. I'm going to replay the sentence. 
His first wife, Minnie, left him, taking all of his money to chase a career in vaudeville. Oh, she did. She left him for a vaudeville career. Did she find Mouse, Mickey Mouse? I have no idea what happened. Maybe like, they got married and they created the Disney Channel. They created. <laughs> whose wife hasn't left them for a career in vaudeville? And I love how back in the day, wives used to be named Minnie. <laughs> yes. He found a second wife. Her name was Maria. And he and Maria acquired a dilapidated boat and they renamed it Rutan, but sometimes called it Maria. Oh. Yes. A couple of things on this. First of all, they were harboring hopes of a gunner. A what? A gun running career in Latin America. Oh, my God. I love this guy. <laughs> Dude, I'm so glad you picked him. I'm talking about this guy and his name Streeter. Street yeah. and always on the move. Can't sit still. I love this guy already. Their gun running goals were thwarted because gas cost money. Oh, yeah. On the renaming of boats, based on mythology, you can't or should not rename a boat because it means that you're trying to slip something past either Neptune or Poseidon and you'll be punished. Ooh. It's to the point where this is so... so intense. It's a well-known nautical myth. I don't want to say myth. Suspicion is the word I was looking for, that you don't rename boats. But Streeter up here, he just renamed the boat. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> you're gonna love you're gonna love this whole Streeter story. It's complicated. How did Captain Streeter, this colorful character, end up with a neighborhood named after him? And for anybody not familiar with this neighborhood, it is some of the highest rent in the city of Chicago. It's where you've got Northwestern Memorial Hospital, you've got Water Tower Place. You've got the John Hancock. It is really got my favorite 7 Eleven in there. There's got a nice 7 Eleven over there. Where's the but yeah, it is super high rent, super condensed. There's not always a lot of sunshine that comes in on the streets, but it is very bougie. Some some of the most expensive real estate in the the American region, not just Chicago, but within the tri-state area too. So high. I think I read that it's actually at one point in time, I don't know this to be an accurate statistic, but it was the second most expensive place in America. Yeah, that makes sense. And the the apartments. I went to apartment hunting with my mom and they're sardine cans, but only cleverly engineered with some nice granite tops. But yeah, the, sp- the what you're paying for is like on par with New York. Yeah, you're paying for the location. There's actually two uh, apartment buildings that are now condo buildings that are Mies van der Rohe's very first buildings in the United States of America. And they're on the National Register of Historic Places. And every art history book you're ever going to open. Hashtag architecture trivia. In 1886, July of 1886, the Rutan slash Maria got grounded 450 feet off Chicago's near North Shore, where the John Hancock stands now. The boat got uh-oh. Grounded. Remember, it was said to have happened during a storm. 
But some of the research suggests a more sinister scenario, which indicates that this was premeditated and actually an attempt at extortion. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, there's wow. this is one of those stories where everybody's a good person and nobody's a good person. You got Palmer. Yeah, is that like the vibe of the 1800s? Was that like, yo, let's just start messing things up and see what we can get away with? I really or do feel like, like that, that was the whole time. I don't know. But, yeah. I feel like that was the vibe of Chicago in the 1800s. And I think part of it was corruption. And you could just move like eight miles away and no one would ever find you. Yeah, totally. Maybe that's why Chicago cre- created its own serial killer. It's like, oh, what are they going to do? No one knows. You're right. It, it was the Wild West. Yeah. One of the things that was fascinating for me, it, particularly in the Streeter story, is to have to keep reminding myself of that. Chicago, as we know it now, just didn't exist and that's why early on I created all the different things that were happening when it came to urban planning and real estate is you have what a mile or two South, you've got Montgomery Ward suing people up to the Illinois Supreme court. I didn't keep, know that. Wow. Yeah. It's actually fascinating. It's apparently the gold standard for the use of public land in the state of Illinois. That's why I wanted to create the whole, there was just a lot going on and it wasn't like they had zoning regulations. And let's face it, even today, zoning regulations, what are those? Now, back to Wayne Klatt. In his prologue, he states about Streeter, the landowners have left us no account of their speculation, leaving us to watch the marsh partly through Streeter's perspective. So we have no idea about the landowners. We only have Streeter's perspective. He goes on to say, yes, Streeter never told outright lies. Each of his anecdotes of bravery had a seed of truth. Rather than disregarding his colorful embellishments, this book offers them as legends for comparison with facts. So the first way of saying that. Yeah. The first legend is that it was a stormy night and he got stuck on the sandbar. Now, he asserts that Streeter suspected the covert plans to develop the marsh and deliberately grounded the boat. And in fact, according to weather records, the wind was about 23 miles per hour that day. Which is average. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, it was not. I was not, like, that's the tenth, and then I'm like, wait a minute, no, it's not. <laughs> it was not a remarkably windy Chicago day. That's the other thing that comes up here is so much of the stuff that we take for granted that you could verify. Now, you'd have to like go to Washington D.C. to verify what the wind was like that day. <laughs> wow. Under the guise of repairing the hull of the boat one of the rich dudes allowed the boat to remain where it was so that streeter could fix it which makes sense nice honorable thing to do however our guy streeter instead of fixing the boat he paid people to move bricks debris and garbage around the vessel oh 
he began constructing a rubbish reef. Wow. Yeah. For which I am fairly certain he didn't have the proper permit. He's sitting out there. He's paying people like 50 cents, drunks from the bar to bring garbage and rocks. And when I say garbage, the smelly kind. And he's paying people to bring. Yeah, that was before people recycled and used so many packaged foods. People were using real ingredients all the time. People were also using all parts of the animal, not just the nice, pretty parts and throwing everything else away. They use their animals for real, fully. They did. Someday we will talk about encased meats. Oh, Oh, God. I did do a side note. I did do an episode on the big three, Italian beef, pizza, and hot dogs. Ooh. Yeah. I'll pull it out sometime. So he no, he's start, cool. He starts creating his little rubbish reef. That was in July. By mid-fall, the rich guys behind the Lakeshore Drive development, well, they became concerned that Streeter might be squatting and it might be more permanent than they thought. So they sent this wealthy guy named Fairbanks to ask him to leave. Seems reasonable, right? Ooh, yeah, and that name yeah. sounds familiar. That name does sound familiar. That is one of one of the streets in Streeterville. Yep. Yeah, you had Newberry involved in this. Yeah, a lot of familiar names. Fairbanks is going to go ask Streeter to leave. Ostensibly, this is because it was Fairbanks owned the deed to where Streeter was squatting on his garbage island. Streeter greeted him with a gun. Ooh. To which I say, stand your slop. Ugh. For the next few weeks, the city tried to get him on a series of code violations. Health code, building code, oh, all of the codes. Yeah. I was yeah. telling a friend of mine the story and he's, wait, <laughs> got a gun and code violations. You can't really get much more Chicago than that. Oh, yeah, that's totally true. Oh, my gosh. That's totally true. All he needs is like an illegal bottle of liquor in there. You have a new flag, a new poster for come visit Chicago. Oh, that happens. At this point in time, it's it's hard to dislike Streeter. But then as you think about recent times that people stood their ground. And one of them that came to mind for me was the Bundy Ranch. Do you know what the Bundy about the Bundy Ranch? occupancy or whatever they call it standoff with the government no but it sounds really dangerous it sounds either dangerous or obnoxious the name bundy has never always made me smile it always has such an interesting connotation his first name is cliven so this was in 2014 there was an armed standoff between supporters of the bundy ranch these were militia types and sovereign citizens one of whom was actually a guy named Stuart rhodes who was found guilty for seditious conspiracy for January 6th, creates who was there. They were supporting this sovereign citizen named Cliven Bundy. And it was a standoff between Cliven and the feds. After a 21-year legal battle in which BLM, in this case called the Bureau of Land Management, another BLM for them to hate, They had court orders to collect 
over a million dollars in grazing fees because Bundy was letting his cattle graze on federally owned land. For 21 years, the federal government's, hey, you got to you gotta pay us for your, the food. If you're going to have your cattle graze here, we get money, which seems rational to me, but not to Bundy. It's actually funny because the town that they lived in was called Bunkerville. It's super complicated. Basically, it just ended because after the staying of Waco and Ruby Ridge, the feds did not want to escalate things. And mm. yeah, and that's what it reminds me of. There have been some standoffs. The Bundy family had another standoff that I don't know that about, but it did end with a bunch of people just sending them dildos. What? They what? They took over a recreational facility in a federal park and they were telling people to send them things because they weren't leaving. And I think it was by this point in time, people were just fed up with the gimmick of the sovereign citizens taking over places. And instead of sending them supplies, people were mailing them dildos. Wow. Yeah. No comment. I so again, they just didn't want to escalate things. And I think that's like how the original rich people and the city of Chicago were handling Streeter's slop sanctuary. Oh. Yeah. Because after a few weeks, people left him alone. Yeah. I mean, he, is it because he was too gross to be around? He wasn't thwarting anything, and he was there. And I think they probably just figured, who wants to live on Lake Michigan in the winter? I think they thought they oh. could wait him out. Yeah, they left him alone. Streeter saw this as a victory. And he thought it was working. He moved his focus. Keep going. All right, he moved his focus to a site of where a skyscraper was being built at what is now Adams in Michigan. And nice. he hired men to push a streetcar and he set up a diner on the property. There's a developer who's trying That's to develop. Yeah. There's a developer who's trying to develop this property. He sets up this makeshift diner and eventually the owner paid him off with a couple hundred bucks. This worked for him. What is happening over in the Gold Coast now, Streeterville. By 1888, he landed in 1886. Two years later, he had created a fortress on his sewage sanctuary. According to Klatt, the resulting structure looked nothing like a boat and something like a bi-level shanty. Some people mistook it for a barn, but he stocked it with enough weapons to do battle with the city. Did he think he had his own country? We'll get there. Ooh, okay. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> As I said, this is the exposition of the story. So the upper level was his house. The lower level was basically his war room. And... Whoa, he had a war room. This guy was so intense, huh? Yeah. He felt wild. He had a lot of weapons. He wasn't afraid to use them. It's also worth noting, they didn't have plumbing. Say that again. They didn't have money or funny? Plumbing. Plumbing. 
<laughs> That's totally different. They didn't have plumbing. I don't think they didn't have a shower. So they were bathing in Lake Michigan. Wow. In the winter? Maybe they just didn't bathe in the winter. Yeah, probably. In the meantime, Streeter's claiming that he's found land. That this land didn't exist. He found it. And it was his due okay. to his second wife, Maria, being a Civil War widow. Oh, wow. Which apparently was a thing at the time. Now, however, it's unclear if she actually was because she didn't know. Which the book doesn't get into, but leads me to believe Maria left her husband. Or her husband just didn't come back from the war and she doesn't know if he's dead or alive. So that was disproven or it was proven they couldn't prove it. When that was disproven or whatever, he concocted a land warrant, which he had conveniently misplaced. So they'd ask him where his land warrant was. He's like, ah, it's in Indiana. <laughs> where it belongs. <laughs> Yeah, that worked for a little bit. Oh, he started to sell off shares of his land. Oh. He's selling off Garbage Island, too. Really? Yeah. And people are buying. Hmm. In some ways, it becomes a class war at some level. I could totally see that. Actually, I could see that. He got backing from people because he had middle-class supporters. Even though nobody knew about the rich guy's plans, why should the rich guys have all the land? Back to the rich guys. In 1889, the Lincoln Park Group approved expanding Lakeshore Drive to what is now Grand Avenue. At this point in time, the rich guys are also selling the land. Ooh, that's good. I want to underscore that two parties were selling swamp and scrap land to which neither had official claim. This would be like my landlord and I both selling deeds to the alley. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. It's, it's insane. There's absurdity about it. I'm going to sell my alley. And my landlord, I'm selling the alley. And then the city's like, neither one of you can sell the alley. I also want to point out that they called them the Robinson Caruso of the lakefront. That sounds that like a perfect title. Yeah. In 1889, he's now been there for years. The city intervened for the first time. This is the first time the city's like, wow, we got this guy with an arsenal on a garbage island. Maybe we should do something. And again, this is 1886? No, we're now into 1889. It started in 1886. Oh. So we're five years in. 1889. This is, yeah, this is pre-Columbian Exhibition. That is the Wild West. And it's the Dirty West. Oh. There's so much going on. Wow. Yeah. I mean, granted, this was about the same time we had uh, Mickey Finn, the bartender, was drugging people and robbing them in the Vice District. The cops intervened. Five police officers show up and they attempt to remove the streeters and they were pushed away by rifles as happens this is cool you're like this now i get why he has his own town why he has his own neighborhood yes 
Yeah. It's funny. There are some people who don't actually think he really existed. That he's just really? our legend. Yeah. Oh, because he was so extreme. You read these things and you're like, what? Then you read it and you compare it to like the Bundy BLM issue and you're like, maybe it could happen. The land is getting more valuable to the rich guys. And now streeters become a problem. They want to dislocate them. Yeah. Rich dude Fairbanks tries to evict him. But the case was thrown out at the local level. This is key. They went to the Illinois Supreme Court with it. And the Illinois Supreme Court sustained. But the rich guys did not take it further than that because they knew that if they took it to SCOTUS, Streeter could win and that would foil their developments. Why would he win? Because nobody has claimed to the land. They have no reason to. He has no right to stay there. They have no right to evict him. Oh, wow. Yeah, the local court, the Chicago court, was like, you can't evict him. You have no right to do that. They decided, or they threw it out. And then the Supreme Court sustained that decision, and they didn't want to take it to SCOTUS, because what if SCOTUS decided it was Streeter's land? And then they wouldn't be able to do their development. Now that our story has stakes, we are going to end episode one on Streeter. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Wow. No, I think. That is such a great story and it's such a good beginning to Chicago now, today. I think that's such a, it's such a good story. It's I'm glad really, you picked it up. Yeah, and it's really interesting in how it plays out and what comes of it. Because as I said, the things that I brought up earlier, like this saga is still going on with the Burnham plan. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a complicated thing. because. Now he would just be gone. And as much as I get, look at what they did to Occupy Wall Street or the autonomous zone in Seattle during 2020 or the current people who are trying to stop Cop City in Atlanta. Are you familiar with that? No, not at all. They want to build a very large cop training facility in a forest, which would mean chopping down trees. and. I told somebody how big it was once. It was nuts. And so people are sleeping in the forest to protest it. And it's gathering some more mainstream coalition of religious leaders are supporting the forest defenders. But then people are calling them Antifa. Some of them are being held on a weird Georgia law for domestic terrorism. And the reason I'm bringing this all up is that people keep interacting with these occurrences like they're unprecedented. And they're not because we got we had somebody Sam of the Midwest occupying our lakefront for decades. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And I think it's just one of those things that is, oh, this has never happened before. And this is going to be I say this all the time. People are like, oh, this has never happened before. It's like, yes, it did. Even with the goddamn yeah. pandemic, people are like, this has never happened before. Checks notes. 1918. Yeah. Yeah. So, also, people in general tend not to, to not, tend not to enjoy history. So, if you don't enjoy history and you're not reading history, then you don't know you, you don't get to catch the patterns that people who enjoy history do. The streeter thing is it's a pattern. It's something that happened, and it's not like there are now laws in place to keep it from happening. I'm not going to go 
garbage island out of, off of Navy Pier. They're not going to let me do that. But yeah, probably because somebody else owns that random piece of water. And in Chicago, I'm sure somebody owns a piece of water. That's the water rights. I'm sure Chicago owns. Actually, I can find out what the state is there by the next time we talk. I'll figure that out. Okay, cool. We will be back with our second installment of the OG Seasteader Streeter. Till then, if you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you and see you next week. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot-button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye. Bye.